The cooking gene. That's what Southern food historian Michael Twitty calls the inseparable bonding of food and identity. He's always been fascinated by the connections between African and African-American food, but now his research goes deeper and it's more personal. He's literally traveled into his own heritage as he's crisscrossed the South. As he reported on his Cooking Gene blog, he's dug through historical records, cooked at dozens of restored plantations, built a barbecue pit and a wooden grill out of saplings, and cultivated sugarcane, rice, and cotton. His work has gotten him noticed by the TED organization, which named him one of its 2016 class of international fellows. Michael spoke about his work with our contributor, Joe Yonan. He's the food and dining editor at The Washington Post. Michael, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Thank you. So your current focus is a project you're calling The Cooking Gene. Can you explain it to us? Um, The Cooking Gene is basically me exploring my family history through food from, you know, Africa to America, from slavery to freedom. And it's basically putting sort of like not so much a linear history because that would end about Reconstruction, the stories that I'm telling. But it's also just kind of contemporary sort of like unravelings of what happens when we start to talk about race and food and ethnicity and food and how different cultures in the American South have embraced an African-influenced, the most African-influenced American food tradition and how they relate to it in their own identity. So it's, it's, a, it's a story about family and it's at its base level. And there are not that many American culinarians who have you know, sort of trace their own family story, their own American journey through food. We see that in cookbooks on occasion. We see that sometimes in people referencing their grandma or something like that. But this is a little bit deeper than that. Um, It involves DNA research. It involves uh, genealogy. It involves just, you know, conversations between different people that um, I met on my journeys, but also just sort of an internal um, journey to kind of figure out who I am. So tell us about a trip that resulted in something particularly surprising or meaningful to you? What happened? So there were three to four big trips, and since then there have been little ones. Um, But one of our excursions was to Louisiana. And, you know, I think it really hit me there because, you know, I was in basically a food desert. Um, I was also in Sugarcane Alley, which is also called Cancer Alley today. I mean, this is environmental, um, you know, disaster, environmental racism, plus these humongous sugarcane fields. And they're all right beside the plantations where the people you see walking around, that's where their great-grandparents and their grandparents worked, and even their parents. You know, you, you forget that. You forget that, you know, the millennials of today, their grandparents were in those fields of sharecroppers, mm-hmm. and that their grandparents were enslaved people. And these plantations are marketed as, you know, the monuments of the old south you know they're the they're the major drive to business to south louisiana the tourism and then you go to the museum and you learn about this community and it there's there was one little plaque that said that the black independent farmers of donaldsonville and businessmen decided to have like a uh, almost like a community farm where these sharecroppers who were going into debt to you know feed themselves and feed their families you know they said, well, hey, you can come here. You can get the food that you want without shame and without having to incur more debt to the plantation owners. And I just thought to myself, people are constantly hitting me up talking about how do I solve the problem of food justice? 
And here it is, 1912, with no Twitter, no black Twitter, <laughs> no Facebook, no, no, no nothing, no Instagram, you know, no crowdfunding. And despite Jim Crow, despite segregation, despite poverty, um, the community banded together to, you know, meet its food needs and heal itself and be self-sufficient. And that was incredibly powerful. But it was also um, difficult to comprehend in the in the light of the fact that this community today has large swaths of food deserts. Environmentally, you know, there's chemicals being belted into the air by the second. And you're surrounded by sugar, the ultimate symbol mm-hmm. of excess and bad health when it comes to the Atlantic world in America and slavery. It was it was very intense. It kind of, you know, congealed for me all the different issues that I was encountering. Well, you seem to have been interested in these cross-cultural um, connections surrounding food for such a long time. You converted to Judaism when you were, I think, was it 22? Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the connections that you see between um, Jewish cooking and food of its various traditions and African food, African-American food, Southern food? How do those lines come together for you? It's all about crossroads. It's all about intersections. Um, it's all about exile and migration. You know, it's almost as if we shopped <laughs> every step of the way um, as we made our way across the world in triumph and tragedy, um, picking up new ingredients and new ideas. And it's interesting for me as I go about creating, you know, recipes and food ideas that blend both African and Jewish diasporas in the African-American and Jewish-American experience, how often some of the same themes come up, you know, a lot of times our our traditional comfort food has now become very expensive. You know, brisket and oxtail were not the most expensive thing, you know, when they were common celebration foods. And now they are pricey and restaurants go to great lengths to make them um, as fancy as you want them to be. Um, the food has humor. The food has, is satirical because it has to be. Um, the, the old narrative of they tried to kill us we won, let's eat, is equally <laughs> applicable for, for black and Jewish plates. And we talk about the food while we eat it incessantly, which is kind of annoying but endearing. And the most important part to me has always been that we use food as a mnemonic device. Um, there, are, there are ancient food cultures in the world, and they don't do that. We do. Every time you sit down to um, the plate of kugel or the plate of chitlins, I'm just being as stereotypical as possible at the moment, you know, you're going to get a story about who it came from, why, and surrounding narratives about that food and what went into it. And that is using that food as a mnemonic device, a memory device, to sort of orient both the teller of the story and the ones who are hearing it for the first time into a bigger stream of history. So you wrote something for The Post um, a while back that included the lines, identity cooking is when you cook what you are, that's how you can best understand me. You've got to taste my cooking. Once you taste my food, I make perfect sense. Give us an example of something that you cook that explains who you are. Okay. So, you know, I got so tired of people going, huh? You, you're what? You're black, you're gay, and you're Jewish. How is that possible? You know, how is it possible? It's America. Of course I'm possible here. If I'm not possible here, where else can I be possible? Um, so you have to, <laughs> you have to sit people down. You have to put some food in their mouth so they shut up. <laughs> you have to make them chew the food, and the food has to taste good. 
So you have to meet all those goals and you have to use the food to explain who you are, where you come from and where you're going. That's a lot. That's a lot to ask of yourself as a cook, as a culinarian, as a food person. And it's a lot to ask of your the people you're feeding in the hospitality to sort of receive all those messages. Um, you know, I thought I was I, I thought I was really being funny when, you know, I came up with um, the kosher soul roll. But I really thought about it after a while and thought about this. What do black people and Jewish people in America love to eat more than anything else? Chinese food. Yes. Must be a spring roll. Two, must have pastrami in it. Three, must have collard greens in it. Four, must have a sauce that makes both people happy. And it's about negotiation. What's important? What are you going to keep? What are you going to leave behind? What are you going to compromise on? What are you going to bring together? How are you going to make it all harmonious? So that's what I mean by, you know, you understand me. Oh, you had to go through all these machinations to make this possible. Exactly. The same thing when I do, what I do when I look in the mirror. You know, I have to do a lot of work to, to do this. And it's not you do it once. You do it every single day. You get better at it and it looks effortless. But it's always, it never gets any easier. It's just a process of negotiation and figuring out what ingredients will make you taste good to other people. <laughs> Michael. Thank you so much for talking to us today. This is fascinating. Well, thank you. Michael Twitty is the author of the forthcoming book, The Cooking Gene, and the blog, Afroculinaria. Joe Yonan is the author of Eat Your Vegetables, Bold Recipes for the Single Cook. Check out a recipe from Chef Bryant Terry for a bit of soul food redo. Find his citrus collards with raisins at splendidtable.org.